0: Let's open our Bibles now together to Romans chapter 9, finishing up this chapter this morning. Just the last few verses. We are going to be picking up in verse number 30. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord now. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this pure and perfect gift. Lord, thank you that that your word is not dependent on the, the life and energy of the one proclaiming it, but on the one who is proclaimed. And so we Lord, submit ourselves before your word this morning. We submit ourselves before you, the Lord of glory. We pray that you would accomplish that which only you can do through your word by your spirit. And I do pray for myself this morning as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are wrapping up now this morning our study of Romans 9 as we make our way through this glorious epistle, and and, uh, Romans is full of deep theology, especially the whole first half, but when we get to Romans 9, it's as if we're thrown out into the middle of the ocean somewhere and realize we are in way over our heads. Last week in verses 22 through 29, as we looked at it, Paul is emphasizing for us the fact that God has a purpose in divine election. There is a a purpose in his choosing of a people for himself. And that is, Paul told us, to reveal the glory of his mercy to those whom he has chosen. Specifically, to reveal his mercy against the backdrop of sin, and judgment, and evil, like a, like a jeweler places a, a fine diamond on a, black ground of, on a background of black velvet so that the splendor of the diamond can be seen more vividly. Likewise, it's against this backdrop of sin, and rebellion, and judgment, and hardness of heart, and condemnation that God has chosen to display to us that he has given us gifts that we could never pay back, gifts we could never earn for ourselves. Gifts we could never deserve. He has given us, instead of the judgment that we deserve, Christians, he has given us friendship with himself. He has given us citizenship in his kingdom, made us sons and daughters of the Most High King. And so it's, it's against this black backdrop of sin and God's just response to sin that we see his grace and mercy more clearly than we otherwise would have seen it. We wouldn't wouldn't know what grace and mercy were if it weren't for the justice of God and the judgment of sin. And so Paul has spent the first half of this great book, of the book of Romans, giving us glorious mountaintop theology. In chapters 1 through 8, he has dealt with a, a number of doctrinal topics, especially focused around the teaching of justification by grace through faith. Then starting in chapter 12 through the rest of the book, he transitioned to what's often called the practical section of the book of Romans. I hate that description for chapters 12 forward because the doctrine and theology in the first half of this book is some of the most practical things we could have in our lives. It's this knowledge of God and what he has done and what he has accomplished. That's some of the most practical information we could ever receive. But he transitions in the second half of the book to saying, how ought we to live in, in light of, of these truths that we have been discussing? But here in between those two things, in the middle of all that, Paul has a discussion about Israel. Chapters 9 through 11 begin to deal with Israel. Well, how does that fit? How does that fit with the the doctrine and theology in the first half of the book and the the outworking of that doctrine and theology in the second half of the book? And now in the middle, we're just going to talk about Israel for a little bit. Well, it's not arbitrary. It relates very much to what came before it and very much to what comes after it. But how, how does it do that? There's two basic answers to to this. He's talking about Israel in chapters 9, 10, and 11 because of a very practical problem. Israel had received the promises of God through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through the Old Testament prophets, and yet they had rejected the very embodiment of those promises, the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the Jews in, in Paul's day had turned their backs on Jesus, and this is where the significant problem lies, because after seven chapters of glorious theology and doctrine, in chapter 8, Paul has made these astounding claims about the unshakable nature of God's promises. He has assured believers in chapter 8 that they never need to fear being abandoned by God, that that God would not do that, that God is all-powerful, that God has made promises, and so we can be assured that the good work he began in us, he will surely see through to completion. And that's where the problem lies, because God had shown himself powerful in the Old Testament. God had made promises in the Old Testament, so now how is it that Israel has rejected Christ and failed to come into full possession of those promises. And so, Paul needs to explain that. Paul needs to explain how, how that is. And I know we're covering some of the ground we covered as we got into Romans chapter 9, and Paul raised that question. So, so, what he says here in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is not disconnected from what comes before. It's the natural question that arises from it. Secondly, Paul has been talking about justification by grace through faith alone And now in this passage, he points to this reality again, that Israel in his own time had sought to be right with God, not by that means, but by works. Not by faith, but by works. And so the situation with Israel is directly tied to what Paul said before. It's even directly tied to what comes after in chapters 12 on, when Paul tells us how we ought to live in light of these truths, because... Paul's instructions for us in chapter 12 going forward are the outworking of salvation and not the cause of salvation. But Israel had been doing things in order to gain salvation. We do these things, we don't do these things, and that's where we get our standing with God. And so this situation with Israel is directly tied to what Paul had said earlier and what comes afterwards. One is either right, Paul says, with God on the basis of faith alone or one is not right with God. And so it's very practical for Paul to speak about Israel right here in the middle because they have turned their back on the promises of God. And the first answer Paul has given in Romans chapter 9, as we've been seeing, to how could have this happened? How could Israel have turned their back on God? How could... How could Israel have rejected their Messiah, turned their back on God's promises? And Paul's first answer in Romans chapter 9 is, we must first look at the sovereignty of God if we're going to understand what happened. He begins by pointing to God's sovereign mercy, that God's grace is God's choice. For grace to be grace, God has to be free to give it or not give it. It's not a paycheck. Salvation is not a matter of fairness. It is a matter of mercy. And again, that's a very hard lesson for us to swallow. Perhaps you've struggled with that for the last number of weeks as we have gone through what Paul has to say to us. Paul's teaching here in Romans 9 is not difficult to understand. It's very straightforward. He's not being obtuse or unclear, but it is difficult for the natural mind to accept. We We want to argue against it. And so Paul has explained to us, knowing that truth about us, he's explained to us that God's choice is not arbitrary. God is not capricious. God's judgment is always fair. It is never unjust. It is what every sinner deserves. And if God's judgment is what every sinner deserves, here's what that means. It's what every person deserves. Because every person is born a sinner and a sinner by choice. So there's no unfairness. There's no unfairness here on God's part at any point. Paul has made that very clear to us. And so God's electing mercy isn't about fairness because fairness just means we all get judged, condemned, and go to hell. No, what it is is an act of, it's a sovereign act of grace, a sovereign act of mercy. Fair has nothing to do with it. Fair is judgment. Fair is condemnation. Fair is hell. When it comes to salvation, if you are thinking in terms of fairness, you have the wrong category. You are not thinking in a biblical way. The only category we can consider when it comes to salvation is the category of mercy, not the category of fairness. And so... That might lead us to think, everything we've heard from Paul up to this point in Romans chapter 9 has probably caused us to start thinking these questions, well, what does that mean about our responsibility as people? Where's man's responsibility in this? If the first answer Paul gives is, look at God's sovereignty. He does what he wants to do. He chooses who he wants to choose, and he passes over who he wants to pass over. What what about our responsibility? What about the need for faith? Well, Paul, having first addressed, as of the first priority, God's sovereignty, now he's ready to address man's responsibility. Now that he has pointed our eyes to see God for who he is, now he points us to our responsibility. He's going to talk about that for all of chapter 10, really. These last couple verses in chapter 9 and then all of chapter 10. For Paul, these two things are not contradictory to one another. God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility are compatible with one another. They are not at odds with one another. They work side by side. They're not in opposition to one another. And so now as Paul turns his attention to man's responsibility, he addresses this important question. Why on earth would anyone reject salvation? This glorious offer from God to these sinners down in this pit of filth and condemnation, and God says... I'll free you from that. I'll make you my own. You'll be the inheriting son of the Almighty God. Why would anyone look at that and go, I think I'll pass? How could that be? But it's an even more pointed question than that that Paul's asking. Why would a religious person reject salvation? Why would someone who's schooled in the Scriptures reject salvation? Why would would someone who is among God's covenant people, God's Old Testament covenant people, why would they reject salvation? People whose entire identity is defined by their relationship to God, whose focus in life was on being obedient to God. Here's the list of things we do and the list of things we don't do because God says so. Why does that person reject salvation? How could that possibly happen? How could that group reject salvation? And that was the reality as Paul's writing this letter. Israel had rejected, by and large, God's salvation. The covenant people of God who had been given the scripture, who'd been told that the Messiah would come through them and for them, had for the most part closed their ears to the gospel, had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, and had scorned him as the only way of salvation. And as we saw in the first five verses of Romans chapter 9, Paul's devastated by this. He's broken hearted by this. His, his understanding of God's sovereign choosing and electing grace did not lead him to be cold and calculating and uncaring. Quite the opposite. He is broken hearted. He even says this amazing statement. If it were possible, I would take their condemnation so that they could believe and be saved. And so he addresses this issue of Israel's unbelief. And so let's consider with him now, why would someone reject salvation? Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Paul stating the question for us here. It's basically recapitulating what he said at the beginning of chapter 9, restating this question that we're dealing with. What do we make of Israel in the light of all these things? He's bringing up this same issue. What are we to make of this unexpected situation? We would have expected Israel to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, but instead they rejected him. Instead they turned their hearts against him and stopped their ears from hearing the gospel, but then the Gentiles, these pagans, these wicked, God-hating people, are somehow flocking to him? How can this possibly be? The Gentiles have received, Paul says, a righteousness that comes by faith, but Israel had not attained righteousness through the law. Unbelieving Israel had not found right standing with God, but believing Gentiles had found right standing with God. And that is a very perplexing situation. What are we to make of that? What does it mean? Well, Paul has begun answering that question. He says, first of all, look at God's sovereignty. That's the first answer to this question. Look at God's sovereignty. God has a good purpose, even in Israel's unbelief. He's not he's not absent from this whole process. He has a good purpose in it. His purpose, Paul says, is to reveal his mercy. And it's a good and a right and a just purpose. Now the second thing we need to look at is man's responsibility. And that's why Paul kind of restates the question. Answer number one, first, look at God. Answer number two, now look at men. This is your answer to why this is happening. Look at our responsibility. He's going to emphasize human responsibility, the centrality of faith. If we're going to understand what happened with Israel, and if we're going to understand what is happening with the unbeliever, especially as we look at the landscape of our nation, which is similar in many ways to Israel. There are few people living in the United States who've not heard the gospel, at least at some point in their life the genuine, true gospel message of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's going to say, if we're going to understand what's happening there, what's happening in the hearts of the people who are filling churches across this country right now who are not converted? He says, if we're going to understand that, first of all, we have to understand something about sovereignty, and then we have to understand something about faith. God's sovereignty is compatible with man's responsibility. Again, they don't contradict each other. They work together. So so Paul's not saying, it doesn't matter. Let's just agree to disagree about all this. You, You can either believe Romans 9, verses 6 through 29, and what it says about God's sovereignty and election. You can either believe and accept that, or you can instead believe Romans... 9, verse 30 through all of chapter 10 and what it says about man's responsibility. It doesn't really matter. Believe one or believe the other. That's kind of how we live our lives as American Christians. This controversial issues and we go, well, this is my, I'm on this team or I'm on this team over here. Oh, Paul's not saying that. Here's what Paul's saying. Both of those are true. It's all true. All of Romans 9 is true. All of Romans 10 is true. We don't get to pick the thing that makes us more comfortable. They are perfectly compatible with one another. Paul's teaching in Romans 9 on God's sovereign election of whomever he chooses is compatible with everything Paul says in the next chapter. Paul is not schizophrenic. He's not contradicting himself in the next breath. God is completely sovereign. He does what he wants, when he wants, the way he wants, and he never has to ask anyone's permission. God's grace is God's choice. He can choose to give it, or he can choose to withhold it, and he is righteous and just in either case, but man is responsible for his own choices. We must believe. We must come to him. We must bow our knee. These two things are not contradictory. They are compatible with each other. And So the Gentiles who believed, Paul says, found righteousness. A righteousness they didn't even know to search for. They didn't even know they needed to search for righteousness. They just knew they believed in Jesus, in his claims. But the failure of Israel to believe resulted in their failure to attain the righteousness they were seeking, even as they tried to uphold the do's and don'ts of the law and even added a bunch of their own to it just to make sure they never even got close to the line. So now look at the first word of verse 32. Why? We know that that's what happened. Why did it happen? Why did Israel fail to attain righteousness? Look at verse 32. Why? Because... Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So to answer this question, why did this happen? Paul gives us a two-part answer. They rejected salvation first because they sought it in the wrong way. And second, they rejected salvation because they rejected the Savior himself. There is a wrong way to seek fellowship with God. Israel was seeking the right thing. Now, we could, we could dig down and talk about their hearts and say, not really. But just in broad categories, seeking right standing with God, seeking righteousness, seeking obedience, that is the right thing to be seeking, but they were seeking it the wrong way. They were seeking that right standing with God the wrong way. Israel sought right standing with God, yes, but they tried to attain it by the wrong means. They sought it through works, through what they do and what they don't do. Just consider how scandalous Paul's teaching is here. To our, to, not only to those Jews, but to our modern culture. We, we tend to think if a person is seeking God, that's good enough. I can tell you how often someone will talk to me and they'll name some heretical group that some family member is going to and they'll, just, and they'll say, I'm just glad they're going to church though. No, I'm not glad that they're going to church with the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. I'm not glad about that. There is a wrong way to seek God. It's, we, 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 our culture paints it, and even, even Christian culture paints it, is that God's just up there in heaven, and he's, he just feels so happy that someone would seek him at all. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how they worship him. He just cares that they worship him, and he's like a teenage boy. Any girl that shows me attention is a good one. That is not who God is. He, he he won't just take us any way we want to come to him. We get to decide, and God just has to be happy about it. No, that's not the case. Paul makes it clear that is not true. It is not true. There is a right way to seek fellowship with God, and every single other way is wrong. It is wrong and it will not work. It is wrong, and it leads to damnation. Israel didn't pursue right standing with God by faith. Instead, they pursued it as if they could achieve it by their own works. And God was displeased with that. There are two major mistakes that that drive that kind of thinking. They drive the kind of thinking that we could somehow, by the things we do and not do, Attain righteousness. Drive the thinking of works-based righteousness. It even is the same thinking that drives our idea of whether or not it's fair for God to choose his own people. Again, it's, it's worth reminding you that you chose your own husband or wife. So God should have the right to do that as well. It's just some free like eighth grade practical wisdom for you. These two mistakes that are made that are driving this thinking. One is an underestimation of sin. They underestimate their own sin. They don't see themselves as as sinners, not not the way the Bible does, not the way Paul describes in the first three chapters of, of Romans. They see themselves as basically good people. People are basically good and deserving of good things, certainly me, I am. Yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I haven't done everything perfectly, but my heart's good. It's in the right place. And so they discount the gravity of sin, the gravity of of their own sin, the gravity of of every person's sin, the the treasonous, evil depravity of their own nature. They don't see themselves, they don't see all people as deserving of God's judgment and condemnation. We know that. We all know that's true. That, that As Christians, we, we know what the Bible says about that, but the way we figure out that we don't really believe it is when we start to ask questions of fairness when the doctrine of election is brought up in Romans chapter 9. As soon as we start asking about fairness, what we're revealing is, we don't actually think everyone deserves condemnation. We think everyone deserves good things and God's just being mean to some people. But Paul's shown us over and over again there's no one righteous, not even one, not even one. So when the sinner thinks he's going to save himself by his work, he reveals that he disastrously underestimates his sin. Secondly, they underestimate the cost of salvation. Underestimate the cost of grace. But by thinking, I can do a few good things. I can commit cosmic treason against the almighty, eternal, thrice holy God, but I'll do this handful of good things and that should get me over the hump. Oh, We underestimate the cost of grace if we think we could somehow atone for our own sin. The Apostle Paul says that's impossible. You you might as well try to climb to the moon on a rope made of water. It's never going to happen. You could never do it. You don't even get the first step. You will make no progress whatsoever. You will end up looking all wet and stupid if you try. Paul says it's impossible because Christ himself is the price that the Father paid for your salvation. That's an infinite price. That's an eternal price. Salvation is infinitely costly. We could never purchase it. We could never earn it. We could never pay our way. We can't even chip away at it. It can only be received as a free gift. And so the one who desires to save himself by works can never, ever, ever pay that price. Now, there aren't many of us in this room, I trust, that would say something like, I'm not a sinner and I don't need to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of people who think that way and live that way. We think of other people as sinners. We're disturbed and grossed out by their sin, but we understand that we meant well. We understand that we just have some issues that we need to work for. Those people over there need saving. They need Jesus. They think of themselves, that they can do certain things and not do certain other things, and that that is going to win them God's favor, improve their standing with God. The Apostle Paul says, look, that's exactly what Israel tried to do. That's exactly what they did. And what it really was, was a rejection of Salvation. That only led to condemnation. Second thing Paul says is they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Stumbling stone is this Old Testament reference to Jesus Christ. Psalm 118 calls him the stone that the builders rejected. In other words, what Paul's saying here, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In verse 32, That Israel could not accept Christ and his cross. It was an offense to them. They wanted fellowship with God, yes, but they did not want it through Christ. They did not want it that way. Jesus Christ and his cross were offensive to the Jews, and so they stumbled. There are always people looking for another way. Looking for some other way to find salvation apart from Christ, apart from the cross, Often what we get in our culture is just a redefinition of Christ and the cross. The cross wasn't about penal substitutionary atonement, Christ bearing the wrath that was ours as our substitute, bearing the penalty that was ours and giving to us in exchange his righteousness. No, the cross was about this poor social justice victim who was providing a wonderful example for us to follow. So we redefine who Jesus is. We redefine the cross, but it's really the same thing the Jews were doing. We want salvation apart from the God of the Bible, apart from the Jesus Christ revealed to us in Scripture, and Paul says there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a salvation that comes apart from Him. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and there is no more unpopular thing to say in our world than that. No more hateful, bigoted thing to say in the world than that statement. People still stumble over the stumbling stone. Faith alone and Christ alone is the only way to have fellowship with God. If you try to approach the holy, living, almighty God on the basis of your own merit, apart from Christ, you will be consumed. There is no hope. There is no hope in that. Why? Why is there no hope in that? Even for the best of people. Because you're the problem. You're the problem. That's why you can't waltz your way up into the throne apart from Christ and presume that somehow you're going to take care of things. The problem is you. You are a sinner. You deserve Your condemnation, it is the paycheck you worked for. You're the problem. Jesus is the solution to the problem that you've caused. And so there's no coming apart from him. The the problem can't solve itself. You can't solve it because it's you. Only Jesus can solve this problem. He's the only one qualified. He's the only one powerful enough to get it done. I often think that and I'm asked that question when I'm teaching classes people say how can it really be that there's only one way of salvation isn't that sort of closed-minded and the truth is it would be if there were more than one way but if there really is only one way then it's not closed-minded at all in fact we should marvel why would God make a way why would God make a way for us It's an offensive message. The gospel is an offensive message. Jesus is the only solution. We are the problem. And so we must accept Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. Or there can be no salvation. And again, this message is incredibly offensive. The gospel is offensive to prideful, rebellious sinners. It always is. It offends our pride by saying we need saving. What do you mean I need saving? It offends our character because it says we're depraved sinners. It offends our autonomy because it says you must bow your knee before this king. The gospel of grace offended the Jews of Paul's day and it still offends. And it will increasingly offend in this hostile culture. Paul goes on in verse 33, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is at the same time a hard word and a glorious word. In other words, the Old Testament predicted, Paul says, that Christ would be both a stumbling block and an offense to many and the way of salvation, saving all who trust in him. Simultaneously, at the same time, Jesus is both of those things. Remember when Mary and Joseph took young Jesus to the temple to be blessed in Luke 2? We're coming up on that season where Luke 2 is sort of on our minds and we, we read that passage, many of us, with our families at Christmas time in verse 25, at the end of Luke 2, we hear this this curious story of Jesus being brought to the temple, and we read this in verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus' It says that Mary and Joseph were marveling at his words as he did this, but but then Simeon says something very strange. He says this in verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and a sign that is opposed and a short sword shall pierce your own soul also so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What Simeon is saying right there in that moment to Joseph and Mary, as he holds the Lord Jesus Christ, is the same thing Paul's saying here in Romans nine. Jesus is the dividing line. Jesus Christ is the dividing line, simultaneously causing the destruction of many and accomplishing salvation for many others. All, all that. Once. And and what is it that makes the difference between these two things that Paul wants to point us to? He starts out by saying, we've got to look at God. Don't challenge him. Don't question him. Who are you, oh man? You're just a lump of clay. God can do with you what he wants, but where does he bring it to end is to this. What makes the difference between these two categories of people? Paul tells us it's believing in him or rejecting him. That's that's what makes the difference. Trusting in our works or trusting in his work, trying to save ourselves or running to him for salvation. So then why would someone reject salvation? Why would a religious person reject salvation? Why would someone who knows the scripture, who knows the gospel, why would they reject salvation? Paul's answer to us is simply this, because they refuse to acknowledge their need. So they refuse to put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They stumble because of their own self-righteousness. And they resent the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is devastatingly sad. But that's not the only thing that we read here as Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. Because for all who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, these words of warning and judgment and grace in the gospel drive them from themselves and their sin to Jesus Christ and his salvation. Whoever believes, he says, will not be put to shame. In other words, when the believer stands before the throne of God, of God the Father Almighty, this throne of justice, this throne of judgment, in that moment, Christian, you will not be ashamed in the presence of your Redeemer. Because we'll be counted with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Whoever believes in Him will have no cause for shame on that day. So as we've studied this doctrine of election in Romans chapter 9, perhaps you have had many questions. Perhaps it has produced in you fear, wondering, how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if I'm chosen? Or, or perhaps my loved ones and my family, what about them? How, how, how do I know? Maybe it's made you to feel Helpless. Here's what Paul would say to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in Him alone as He is offered in the gospel. Turn from your sin. Run to the cross. Call on Him by His Spirit to enable you to trust in Him. And because He is rich in mercy, He will have you. He will not throw you away. And when you stand before him robed in the spotless righteousness of Christ, you will not be put to shame. It's the glory. It's the glory of what the Lord has revealed to us in this passage. What glorious truth it is. And that's our message to proclaim. That's the message we have been given to go into all the world with. Christ didn't command us to go into all the world and teach them the intricacies of the doctrine of election and give them a Ph.D. seminar. Go into all the world with this gospel. Baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Friends, we can do that. Even if we still have questions. Even if we still wrestle and struggle, we can do that because that's our part. It's this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So friends, let's, let's run to him together, day by day, hour by hour. And let's, with all of the grace and love and boldness and passion that we've got, call others to join us, amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, these glorious truths are meant to ignite worship in us, and I pray that they would do that. I pray, Lord, that we would be passionate for you, that we would be passionate disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to walk in obedience, not to earn right standing with you that you have given to us already in Christ, not to try to to earn for ourselves what you've already given us, but instead out of love and worship and devotion, that our lives may bear sweet testimony to the, the glory of the gospel to the power of the gospel. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in us, that we, Lord, would rest in Christ even as we keep our hand to the plow here on earth. Pray that you would be glorified in us and through us for your kingdom's sake, for your glory, for the eternal joy of all of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.